This is Abrupt Future, the podcast on the future of work that happened faster than we thought. Each week, we feature conversations with experts in leadership, management, human resources, culture, and technology to help you succeed in this new normal. This is your host, Benoit Ardivalli. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Abrupt Future, the podcast on the future of work that happened faster than we thought. I'm very happy this week to be speaking with Liz Kislik, an experienced management consultant, executive coach, facilitator, author, writer, expert in leadership, management, culture, and so much more. So first of all, Liz, thank you very much for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you, Benoit. I'm happy to be with you. Well, between food poisoning and client meeting, we finally figure out some time in our schedules to make that happen. So I would like to get started and, and go to something that from an external point of view seems to be a common thread or theme in all the work that you do. It, it seems like you spent a lot of time thinking about how we should approach a conflict, difficult conversation, or even difficult individuals. So first of all, am I on the, on the right thread here in terms of theme? I do talk about those things a lot. It's funny to hear them listed all at once <laughs> because it could sound negative and I don't feel negatively about it. No, um, no. You know, the ability to deal with things that might be a little hard is really crucial to being able to get our work done, get through the day, and actually feel good about what's happening. <laughs> so it's it's a funny combination, but yes, you are absolutely on the right track. And, and for me, when I look at that, like you said, there's nothing negative here. I think to the contrary, any leader, but I would even say any professional who's maturing in their career At some point, you have to be able to to deal with the you know the adult side of life where things can get complicated, and it's not just sitcom type of relationship where you say hello, how are you? You get things, then you go home, and that's it. It's it's a lot more complicated, and sometimes we forget the, to to deal with those human dynamics. So seeing somebody who spent time thinking about that, I think, is a precious asset for the the uh, the management community. Thank you. I. That's really true because to get work done, we have to be able to talk about different views of the work. And mm -hmm. so much that we're coping with now requires evaluating and taking into consideration many different kinds of opinions, particularly the ones that are not our own and coming to some kind of agreement. So feeling too frightened about that or being what's sometimes called conflict avoidant means mm. that a lot of important conversations don't get held and crucial decisions don't get made. And then the work doesn't progress and everything can stagnate. So that's interesting because there is conflict. So that's an interesting topic in itself, but there's also conflict avoidance. We are sometimes afraid to get into situations that are conflicting. Uh, What's your, I don't want to call it solution, but your approach to deal with conflict and conflict avoidance? Understanding it's a broad subject, but what are your key learnings on that topic? 
Okay, let me give you a couple. So in terms of conflict itself at, at the broadest level, you know, we, we argue even with ourselves. <laughs> I often have two opinions at the same time and I have to work it out with myself. So Very true. it would be great to have the idea that conflict is not dangerous and doesn't have to be harmful but that it can lead to good outcomes if we work it through carefully. And that might help in terms of dealing with conflict avoidance because we avoid conflict because we don't want to be the bad guy. We don't want to be the person that other people don't want to hear from. Um, We don't want to be perceived as treating other people badly. And often we're afraid of challenging whoever is in power, or we're afraid that we won't get our points across and we will lose. So there are a lot of very basic human needs that are threatened by the potential of conflict. You know, we want to be in community. We want to feel happy with other people. Some people really need to feel in harmony to feel safe and good. So these are all legitimate aspects of society and socialization that make us wary of conflict. One of the things that really helps a lot is to notice what happens in your body when you are approaching a conflict or are afraid of conflict, because your body often knows before your mind does. And, Mm -hmm. you know, some of us tense up or clench the jaw or get hot or have feelings of nausea. There are many different physical feelings that we get when we're afraid. And it's a particular kind of fear. And so being able to calm the body often lets the mind know that we're safe and we can proceed and it's just a conversation. I mean, very few of us are in circumstances where a conflict or saying the wrong thing is world ending. You just need to have more discussion and try to work it through a little better. Yeah, I guess in many cases, we we use our ancestral defense mechanism that were meant for real life threatening event. And then we we apply that schema to say, a, you know, performance management reviews or, or, or problem solving session. And then we put ourselves in the shoes of somebody who's running away from a predator, but it's just your colleague or just your, your manager. Exactly right. That That is very well put. And when we think about it in that negative way, in that potentially harmful way, we can rev ourselves up so that then the other person realizes oh, this is a conflict. You know, when we go into the situation with that kind of, oh, armed for battle feeling, particularly if we can see each other, the other person's mirror neurons fire and their body realizes they're in a conflict and all of a sudden they start feeling kind of bad. And then both of us are too stressed or anxious or angry to actually deal well with the subject. So 
going in with the idea of careful self-management is actually very important. That brings an interesting question because the mirror neurons are largely triggered by visual stimuli. If I see you, I see how you interact. Maybe I'm guessing by, by some feature of voice, tone, or intonation, but what happened when you are either on a phone call or a video conference, you say that conflict is conflict and people are people and we have the same kind of experience and response, or is the digital medium changing the way we, we conflict with, with each other's? Okay, that is a very good question, and I think both things are actually true. In any medium, we can pick up that the other person is tense, or we can approach the medium already being tense. So even in an email, if I see your name in my inbox, and I think, oh, I know Benoit is annoyed at me. I don't know what he's going to say. This is going to be bad. It takes microseconds to think that even as you are clicking on the email and you are already geared up for a fight or Mm -hmm. to run away, you know? So we can have the same reactions no matter how we interact. The thing then is what we do about it. On video, for example, in some ways, it's even easier to be silent and not to participate as it would be in an in-person meeting. It is, you know, if you're just a little box on the screen, you can think, well, no one will notice me anyway. And you can sort of check out, Mm -hmm. even if you leave your camera on. And in the desire to be more supportive of people who are working in all kinds of challenging environments or may not have bandwidth or um, may have noisy pets or children or, you know, whatever's happening in their background, many leaders are more tolerant of people turning off video. And that then creates more of an opportunity to separate yourself in some ways. So, People who feel avoidant or don't want to deal at that moment actually have a little more leeway. And then it's the responsibility of the leader or whoever is initiating the conversation or taking the lead in the interaction to do more checking about what's going on with the other person. Are they all right? Do they have concerns? Are there things that they have not yet expressed about this topic that really need to be heard? So you need to develop a good interviewing technique if you are the one who's responsible for the interaction. And I guess when you are in a leadership position, that comes with additional responsibility when you are either in a one-to-one or group conflict or any kind of conflict. I mean, if you earn the the responsibility of leading a team, then when a conflict arises, you also have some additional or different responsibility to, to manage it. Yeah, that's always been true. Not every leader has been willing to accept that responsibility. Mm. Often there are leaders who think, well, I make the decision, so everybody has to live with it. 
That's one kind of approach. Or the leader will say, well, just go work it out and not take an active role. And that's okay if the participants have all the skills necessary and the confidence necessary to actually work things out. But if there are imbalances of power or knowledge or confidence inside a team, just sending two people away to work something out on their own is like when you send two siblings back to their room to work it out mm. on their own. And, you know, sometimes the bigger one just pounds the little one or the clever one makes a joke or comes up with a story and works things out that way. We all take our roles, our usual roles, and therefore end up in the positions we usually end up in unless we take extra steps to work the conflict out. So sometimes it's the responsibility of the leader to serve as a facilitator, to make sure that all the views are expressed, and to actually help develop better communication skills in the team, because that moves the whole team's work forward. Because I can see the two excess, like a team having too many conflicts or or not enough in the sense that if we if we you know stop sharing our opinion or voice our concern that can lead to other kind of issues so from what i understand here that there, there's a balance as a leader of making sure that those conflict can happen but in a more productive way where you try to you know figure out the issues or or a, a more of a win-win situation than a, than a win-lose situation. Yes, that's right. In many ways, I would be more concerned if there was no disagreement visible. Mm. If no one is disagreeing, first of all, that's just so unlikely, you know, you'd have to think that something might not be right. I don't mean in every single conversation, but overall, The fact that a team has no public disagreement does not mean that they are in good shape and happy and everything is perfect. It's much more likely to mean that good ideas are being withheld and that there is some discomfort ranging from anxiety to full-on resentment present in the team that's not being expressed. And as a leader, you also have to face other type of difficult conversation. And that's also something I found uh, well thought of in, in a lot of your writing and work, right? So dealing with an underperformer, dealing with people who lie at work. W would you say you develop a, a uh, lisk is lick approach to those those different situations? What's, what's your take on all of those different conversations? When everything is going well, You almost don't have to think too hard, but part of being a leader is being willing to confront the hard times because by facing them and looking for ways to resolve them, support them, there is a hope that you can get people back on track. And I think that's one of the most satisfying things when someone who is not behaving well or not performing well is willing to give up whatever that weird behavior is 
and come and play nicely with you as the leader or with the rest of the team so that you can work more in concert. And uh, I always look for where is the fear and the pain in the situation? Because if people are feeling good, they give their best. They don't have to hide. They don't have to behave in strange ways. If they're feeling good and they trust you and there's a problem, they come and tell you. Either they tell you, oh, there was a problem and I took care of it, and then you can praise them, which is wonderful. Or they come and tell you there's a problem and I don't know what to do. Will you help? It's when they are concerned that you won't respond well or you won't accept their view of things that they don't tell you, they hide information, or they just lay back and don't participate fully. Uh, And those are all so disruptive to the team and damaging to output that it seems to me we want to know first what's going on with them why is this behavior happening and try then to really understand it from their point of view because they may be completely wrong but they also may be right and you are unaware of other problems that are occurring yep and now that we're moving into this potentially hybrid or distributed or at least for a lot of the knowledge workers, there's the recognition that we might have people in the office or part-time in the office, mostly home or fully home or even home in different geographies. We could be looking at a very different type or you know, an evolution of, of how people work and collaborate. How do you think leadership will have to evolve? Just think about how complicated that question was, right? (laughs) So many different possibilities. (laughs) And even the the organizations that are making big announcements, we don't really know what's going to happen. They may try to do it the way they're announcing it. And I work with clients who have announced Everybody comes back to the office. No questions. I have clients who say nobody comes back to the office. You know, it, it's it's all across the board. And the thing is that different people need to be on premises different times for different reasons. Sometimes it is about the nature of their work, whether they are, for example, uh, handling product. You've got to be where the product is. Sometimes it is a function of whether they are serving customers either face-to-face, in which case it's a physical premises issue, or in service, sometimes it is a time-bound issue. They can work from home with the right equipment, but they have to be on duty at certain hours. There are constraints all over the place. And exactly to your point and and the name of this podcast, this is the kind of thing that many leaders have envisioned as evolving over time and now we're in the middle of it and with you know the delta variant coming on so strong and who knows what's next leaders have to be ready to make plans and to have their plans not work out and you know we all hate that sort of thing <laughs> because yeah. it is it's distressing 
to look into a confusing future and not be sure. Not be sure for yourself, not be sure in how to communicate to your team, and not be sure because, you know, then if you have a dozen people, all 12 of them have different concerns, and you're actually responsible for all of that. So, in a weird way, this makes even a more compelling case that a command and control kind of leadership will be less effective because then no matter what happens, everything comes back to you as the leader. You have to make a new decision. Maybe it's right. Maybe it's wrong. With all the things that are going on, the likelihood of getting it wrong is pretty high. But if you share the decision, if you open to different points of view, different preferences, and can give people leeway to do at least some of the stuff that's best for them, then they will make adjustments when things go wrong. And you can also adjust. It's not like you have to handle all the adjusting for everybody and then force them. Enforcement is really exhausting. And it's exhausting to the people, and it is exhausting to the leader, even if they think that kind of command is how a leader is supposed to behave, and even if they think it's very concrete and specific, because things keep going wrong. And it's hard to face that if you believe in a kind of one and done. So flexibility and Benoit's sense of humor is going to save us <laughs> because it's going to be hard and we're going to mess up and we have to have humility about that. I think a little bit after the, the start of COVID, I don't know if it was a, a tagline somewhere, but people were saying, you know, memes will, will get us uh, through that. And, and I think it, it speaks to that need for for sense of humor that uh, I, I agree with you. I think it's an absolutely underrated skill that brings collaboration, communication, fun, engagement, good employee experience, motivation, name it. But I mean, it's not that like everybody needs to be a stand-up comic, but being able to look at fun and, and, and the laughable thing or, or creating moment where you can share a laugh. I'm, I'm pretty sure there's all kind of acetylene or serotonin or all kind of hormones that are uh, activated when, when people uh, laugh together. And that is likely the foundation of a lot of collaboration. And the good thing with that is that we can trigger that remotely. I mean, you know, as long as the, the sound is good enough, you can still tell a joke and get people to laugh. That's exactly right. And you know the expression, oil on troubled waters? Mm -hmm. Yes, because it is part of being in relationship. And to all the very accurate management terms that you listed, I would add love and compassion. Mm -hmm. Because when you can feel love and compassion for other people, you are more open to taking them as they are and accepting whatever their real circumstances are. And you are more able to commit to shared responsibility for whatever the circumstances are and for the outcomes. And that permits a leader to be vulnerable and to share their own discomforts 
and also to learn more about everybody else so that then you actually have the opportunity to inspire them more and have them commit more. So you can have almost, uh, what's it called, a virtuous cycle mm-hmm. where we're in this together and we care about each other and we care about, I hope, we care about our goals. And so we're always looking for how could we do better? How do we help each other when somebody has a bad day? How do we share the work if somebody needs a break? Then we're working maybe not just like an organization, but like a little organism and really flowing more in the same direction together. So are you saying we should not be managing people like robot-driven by number and reward only? I am saying that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, I do like numbers because numbers are excellent clues. Yes. I just don't like it when people treat numbers as answers and rules. Mm. They're just data points. I mean, they're so useful and we need to have them and they tell us a lot, but they are not everything by themselves. And rewards badly placed can do a lot of damage. It's it's interesting how technology keep evolving and how we think about leadership also evolve, but If, if I look at everything I've heard or read or seen in those last 20 years, it sounds like every year we're getting closer and closer to equating leadership with, with profoundly human quality, right? Like you mentioned, love and compassion and, and the sense of humor and, and the kind of things that we enjoy in great human beings. While it felt like a while ago, um, they were... I guess, secondary feature or less central feature. So I don't know, I mean, in your career, if you said that shift also in how we think about leaders. So I'm a bit of a skeptic. I'm very optimistic, but I'm a bit of a skeptic. I think it's going in both directions at once. I think there are many more leaders who are talking about our shared humanity and are trying to operate out of that and helping employees be their best selves, both on the job and when they are not on the job, and they are getting good results. But that's a long-term play. And there are certain kinds of deep confidence you have to have as a leader to be willing and able to do that. And you reference the tools, and we have many more ways of conducting a kind of surveillance on employees as if we don't trust that they will do the work that we have asked them to do and that they have committed to do. There are many new technologies that you can use to monitor your at-home workers, some of which really seem out of hand to me. And I think those things create I think they they can lend themselves to people being frightened and feel forced and that people shrink in their humanity under regimens like that. So I think as humans, we are inclined to go in both directions. And it's a question of who you are and who you work with and what you can tolerate. So while it might be more socially accepted or, or 
well perceived when you talk about shared humanity and all that. At the same time, you could also be deploying those surveillance tools that negate all that that progress we made in, in improving uh, how we think about about managers and, and leaders. Do you have any example of, of those practices that you find a bit off limit, let's say, or not, not as productive as they should be? Oh, I have no personal experience with this, thank goodness. But, yeah. you know, during the pandemic and particularly during lockdown periods, I saw all kinds of articles about software that would count keystrokes that would know if a worker was at their workstation at home. These are very untrusting measuring schemes. And they almost assume that someone will try to cheat. And my experience is that when you assume people will cheat, you are likely to create more cheating. And when you trust people, the majority of them will be trustworthy. You will always get some people, even if you are measuring them to a fairly well, who will behave perfectly, whether out of fear or not. And even if you trust everyone, there will from time to time be someone who is untrustworthy and behaves badly. And You know, most of our operating rules, by this I mean uh, interpersonal operations and organizational operations as opposed to production, most of our rules come from an experience where somebody behaved badly and we thought we had to create enforcement to try to prevent that. But enforcement is always post-action, you know? Mm -hmm. And this is the issue of working with people. So having good values, hiring people who believe in your values, treating people well, learning who they are so that you can treat them according to the way they need, building that kind of upside and being thoughtful helps you create cushion for those rare times where someone abuses the privilege or behaves badly. Or as mistaken, you know, things will go wrong from time to time and you need cushion. But I think that's a much more humane way to operate than assuming people will behave badly and you are going to find them out and punish them. That kind of negative cast makes everything a little negative. Yeah. I mean, one person one day walked in a plane with some explosive in their shoes And then the rest of humanity have to take them off as they, they go through security, probably forever. So, you know, I, I, I think yeah, once these things are in place, they don't necessarily go back. So if we only focus on, on that form of control or micromanagement or command and control, then, you know, in the end, we probably end up in the, in the worst position that we are. And... I think the, the opposite of that, you were talking about, you know, hiring people for values and, and developing values. And I think these are things that support the development and maintenance of a culture of agility, which is 
less about you know enforcing and more about you know, fostering, empowering, and all, all all that good stuff. Is that um, is that going in the right direction? Oh yes, I, you know, to a point you made earlier, our brains are wired to look for danger because they're trying to keep us alive. So it takes extra effort in the beginning to build everything for the positive. But once you do it, you know, then it develops its own momentum and people want to come work with you because they've heard it's such a good place. Then you're an employer of choice and you have a waiting list and people are very excited to come and work for you. What a great situation. Isn't that better than having to pay extra incentives just to get people in the door who then turn around and leave in three to six months? So there is this long-term benefit and the agility that you speak of then lends itself to greater innovation and creativity to provide better products or better service. And again, that just goes to more business, all of which is good. But it's for the long term and it takes focus and attention. And hopefully the that transition we're living now with COVID will be the, the final nail on the coffin of micromanagement and command and control. I think you might be more optimistic than I am. <laughs> I don't think that coffin will ever be shut. Yes. <laughs> you know, but I think there will be more and more of us who want it the other way. Mm. And in the long run, if that's true, and we are seeing some of this as younger generations come into the workforce, good people will not want to work in bad places. So I think we, I mean, I think we can be optimistic. Yeah, yeah. No, and it's it's not about painting the, the future in pink, but I guess having this, this vision um, or sharing this vision could certainly encourage a leader to think differently if they are not doing that um, already. Let's see, shall we? <laughs> yeah. Well, Liz, one final question for you. Where can we learn more about your work? Oh, thank you. Uh, the best place is really my website. That's www.lizkislik.com, L-I-Z-K-I-S-L-I-K. And uh, Benoit, if it's good for your audience, there's a free ebook there they can get on the interpersonal aspects of conflict that might be helpful. And there are many blogs and articles and podcasts, and uh, they can find my TEDx there. There's loads of material on just these kinds of issues that we've been talking about. Yeah, yeah. And I peruse some of that. I, I can attest that it's uh, good reading easily easy to to digest but still uh, very very thoughtful I'll make sure to put the link to the website and the ebook in the show notes so well liz thank you so much for the time uh, with us today it's been so lovely talking with you 
This was a rough future, the podcast on the future of work that happened faster than we thought. I hope you learned something valuable. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and any feedback or rating is greatly appreciated. On LinkedIn and in real life, my name is Benoit Hardivelli and I thank you for your time.